0: And good morning once again. Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, Chapter 2. If you are new with us, we welcome you and want to let you know we have been working our way through the Gospel of John here at Calvary on Sunday morning. For the last few weeks, we have been studying a section in Chapter 2 where Jesus cleanses the temple, primarily verses 13 to 17. And uh, as we have seen, the temple was designed by God um, in the beginning to be a holy place. In fact, when you study how Solomon built the temple, he didn't even allow them to quarry stones at the temple site. They had to be quarried far away from where the temple was to be put together because there was not to be the sound of chisels and picks and everything else at the temple location. It was a holy place. That's how God designed it in the beginning, and um, of course after it was completed, the people it was a place where people could go to have their sins atoned for and commune with the Lord. Uh, even a place as God had ordained in the outer court, the court of the Gentiles, God set aside a place where Gentile seekers could come to ask questions of the priests, find out more about the God of Israel and po- with the possibility of them converting to Judaism, and yet Even though that was what God originally designed the temple to be, a holy place and so on where man and God could come together, in Jesus' day it had been corrupted by the chief priests and Sadducees who had turned it into a money-making business so much so that Jesus called it a den of thieves, Matthew 21, 13. As we've been studying, it wasn't until Jesus cleansed the temple, he, uh, he drove out the animals, the money changers, It wasn't until he cleansed the temple from all the corruption that um, had overtaken it that it became once again a place where God and man could come together and God could work in some very powerful ways. Now, we said as we read Ephesians 2 that, of course, the temple in Jerusalem is gone. I mean, it was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans. But Paul said in uh, Ephesians 2 that we as the church of Jesus Christ are now the temple of God. God, God's Spirit lives within His church, and yet the church today, as we have been looking at this, has been corrupted in many ways. Again, greed and all has entered into the church. Uh, many look at the church as just a way to make money, and uh, teach it as such, basically. And so, the church today has been corrupted. It's not really um, being used the way God wants to use it because it's uh, just it's so carnal. And uh, so Jesus has to cleanse the church today, and I believe he's doing that. Uh, I believe the Lord Jesus Christ has been cleansing his church over the past few years. He is continuing to do it, and um, we pray he continues because we want the church to be once again what God designed it to be so that God can work the way he wants to work through his church. So that's kind of where we are in this study. And uh, I've been pulling from all four Gospels with regard to the cleansing of the temple. Uh, one of the few things Jesus did or miracles he performed that all four of the gospel writers record, which says to me this is pretty important stuff, that transcends, you know, the temple back in Jesus' day and applies really to the temple of God in our day, the church, which is how we've been kind of uh, going about this. So we first of all in this series looked at what the church is not to be. And you can go back and get the studies on that, go online. And that brought us then to the point of what is the church to be? What is the church to be? The temple of God in the new covenant. And for this, we turn to Matthew 21. And in verse 12, we read how that Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of what? prayer so first of all the church and these are not profound insights you're thinking to yourself boy i came to church to hear these deeply profound th- no no uh peter said, sometimes we have to be put in remembrance of the basics okay i'm just giving you the basics guys uh you know and, and it comes really out of the cleansing of the temple and uh and what it was supposed to be relating it to the church but uh you know jesus said it is written my house shall be called a house of prayer now in saying that, the Lord was quoting Isaiah 56, verse 7, and twice in that one verse, God calls his house a house of prayer. So God, we, this, I'm reviewing still, okay? Um, number two, though, the word prayer uh, in Matthew 21, 13, my house should be called the house of prayer, uh, that Greek word also carries with it the idea of adoration and devotion. Or in other words, worship. So number two, not only is the church to be a house of prayer, it is to be a place of worship. And let me just say this, it goes far beyond singing, although that's part of it. But as I've already said, we're going to look at the subject of worship in detail when we get to John chapter 4. Of course, in that chapter, Jesus says that the Father is, is seeking true worshipers. That's a very important concept, by the way. So we'll look at that in detail when we get to chapter 4. So I'm not going to say anything further on worship uh, right now only to say that the church of Jesus Christ is to be a a house of prayer and a place of worship. Number three, the church is to be a healing place. And again, back in Matthew 21, uh, verse 12, we saw how he cleanses the temple. Verse 14, it says, After he cleansed the temple... Then, very important word, then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Now, folks, when I say the church is to be a healing place, I don't mean primarily physical healing, although that is in view. Uh, I know that God still heals today. Both Cindy and I have both experienced supernatural healings to different things that we were going through. I know many of you have experienced uh, a supernatural healing from God, uh, or you know somebody who has. And I certainly wouldn't want to say that God doesn't heal physically uh, people today. He certainly does. But remember when we studied this last week, we said how it's interesting, the Holy Spirit says in verse 14, then the blind and the lame came to Jesus. Doesn't say the, those with the withered hands or the demon possessed or something else. It's interesting how the Holy Spirit just focuses in on the blind and the lame. Now, of course, don't get me wrong, I believe it's talking physically, that Jesus healed the physically blind and the physically lame. But whenever I see the Holy Spirit purposely kind of tailor uh, something, a statement that I know is bigger than what is here, I know Jesus healed all kinds of people from different diseases and infirmities, Why just the blind and the lame does the Holy Spirit single out? Because I believe the Holy Spirit wants us to broaden our understanding of what's going on here to include the spiritually blind and the spiritually lame because those two categories signify unbelievers and believers. Of course, those who are spiritually blind are unbelievers. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, the God of this world has blinded the mind of those who don't believe, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ shine in their hearts. So the God of this world is Satan those who are unbelievers or unsaved are blind and when they get saved their eyes are open like all of us okay but then the lame i think could be a reference to believers whose walk is somehow you know impaired by sin or emotional trauma or depression of some kind which has kind of crippled their walk with the lord and the church is a place where they are healed of their lameness where We come alongside them. We love on them. You know, a place where the Spirit of God is working through God's people where if somebody comes dragging in here because they're going through some terrible thing or some sin has them bound and and, and they love the Lord but they just can't get free of it and they're just dragging in here. We are is the body of Christ to race over, bear their burden, pray for them, come alongside, and say, "Come on, I'm going to commit myself to to hanging out with you and taking you to church and keeping you accountable until you're you're strong enough to walk on your own again." That's what the church is supposed to be—spiritual spiritual triage unit, where uh, people who are beat up, yeah, you know, maybe it's self-inflicted through sin, I, but that doesn't—it's not the point. When people come dragging in here, and say, well, "What's your problem?" Oh, man, I'm involved with alcohol. What's your problem? Okay, I mean, what are you you drinking for? At that point, you know what? Come on in. Okay, yeah, you know, I had some things I was dealing with. Not that, but, you know, we all have things the devil's using against us. Come on in. God's going to take care of this. We're going to pray and so on, okay? So the church is to be a healing place, all right? Number four, we're still reviewing. The church is to be a place where God's word is taught faithfully and in truth. Um, For this, I'm going to Luke 19, and then verse 45, again, we see the Lord cleansing the temple. And then verse 47, it says, and then he was teaching daily in the temple. Now, as we said last week, guys, wherever the Lord Jesus went, he taught God's word, obviously. But especially, listen, especially when he was in the temple. Because God had designed the temple to be a place, this was his original design. Uh, God had designed the house of God, the temple, to be a place where people could go and know they could go and hear God's truth, either through prophet, priest, rabbi, or in this case, through the word made flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, when you talk about the house of God today, where else can people go to hear the truth of God? doesn't always mean it, 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 I can't tell you how many people come to me and say you got no idea what's out there. I've tried like five different churches, none of them are teaching the word. Now that's a tragedy, that does speak to the last day's church, that men would want their ears tickled and would gather to themselves teachers who would tell them what they want to hear and would not teach the word of God. But the house of God is supposed to be a place where people can come and hear the truth of God, can hear the truth of God, right? But we are living at a time, and and this is so important, no much more so than right now, because we are living at a time of great deception. In fact, when the disciples came to the Lord Jesus Christ in the Mount of Olives, in Matthew 24, and said to him, Lord, what are going to be the signs of your coming in the end of the age? What were the first words he said in verse 4? Take heed that no one deceives you. We are in the last days. Of course, Jesus was talking about the time just prior to his second coming. And he goes on to teach that the time just prior to his second coming uh, would see unprecedented, worldwide spiritual deception. It's also coming to the church. But um, we are living in a time of great deception. Because Satan, who is the God of this world, is in control of most of what flows through this fallen world system in the way of information. Guys, there are only two information streams, I'm talking spiritually now, that flow through this world from which, listen, all ideologies have descended. They both got their start in the Garden of Eden. One is the Word of God, and the other is is the devil's lies, which the Bible often calls the wisdom of this world. James mentions this wisdom in James 3.15 where he says, this wisdom does not come from heaven, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. If you're interested in this, because we dove into this very much so in our series, The Battle for Truth, you can go online, Access it through the topical study section of the website and uh, listen to the first three uh, the first three teachings on it. You want to understand what the extent of this deception is that Satan has injected into the human race? Mind-blowing. Okay, mind-blowing. I'll let you dig that out for yourself. But guys, whether you realize it or not, this is what spiritual warfare is really all about. It's about control. It, it, it's a war being fought for control the way you think. Spiritual warfare at its core is not casting out demons. That's part of it, small part. At its core is it's a, a war for who is going to control your thinking. The devil wants to control your thoughts, your thinking, with all of his aberrant ideologies and lies. Because as the Bible says, as a man or a woman thinks in their hearts, so, so are they. In other words if satan can control the way you think well he can control the way you live and that's why jesus came into the world Uh, a main reason why he came into the world was to proclaim god's truth in fact when pilate was interrogating the lord in john 18 and at one point verse 37 pilate said to him so you are a king and the lord said answered and said well rightly you have said i am a king for this cause i was born and for this cause i have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Satan's lies are so powerful and today so pervasive that only God's truth can deliver people from them. That's why Jesus went on to say in John 8, verses 31 and 2, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. What's the context? Free from spiritual deception. It will protect you from Satan's lies. And by saying this, guys, Jesus was acknowledging that there is a spiritual war going on in the world, an invisible war, war that all of us are subject to. In fact, it was to this point that John opened up his gospel. As we've been studying John's gospel, you remember when John opened it up, he said, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Verse 4, he goes on to say, And in him was life, and and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness could not, what? Comprehend Comprehend it. But you see, if you read a little bit, John is presenting a, a war, a conflict of sorts. He's saying Jesus entered into a world where there was going to be conflict between him and someone else. Okay? I mean, he introduces us, John does, the apostle, introduces us to the first few verses of his gospel, to the classic battle between light and darkness, good and evil, between God and Satan. You know, guys, in the scriptures, light and darkness are used quite often as metaphors. Light is often used in scripture to represent spiritual truth, holiness, moral purity, and obedience toward God. Darkness is often used in the scriptures to represent spiritual error, evil, moral impurity, and rebellion against God. Furthermore, God himself is called light, 1 John 1.5, and the devil is called the power or the personification of darkness. And again, guys, this conflict between light and darkness is as old as mankind because, as I said, it got its start in the Garden of Eden. It got its start here on the earth, in the Garden of Eden. But John wants you to realize that even though this struggle between light and darkness, God and Satan, has been going on since the beginning of time, he wants us to be sure that we understand that these are not equal forces fighting each other. Satan is a created being, God is the creator. Satan is powerful. God is almighty. There's a big difference, right? So we talk about the struggle between light and darkness, good and evil, God and Satan, please don't be confused that this is like equal forces battling each other. But you know who you talk to in the world, that's how they see it, because they don't know anything. John makes this point very clear in chapter 1, verse 5, when again, we, as we already read, he says, "...the light shines in the darkness." And the darkness did not comprehend it, but the Greek could be translated, the darkness could not overcome it. Because light is always more powerful than darkness. Because truth is always more powerful than lies. And by saying this, guys, John is telling us that Jesus Christ invaded a world of lies, a world of spiritual darkness, with the light of God's truth, primarily the gospel, which alone could set men and women free from the devil's control. Why do I say control? Because the Bible says that Satan has taken captive the people of this world through his lies. Through his lies. And the only thing strong enough to smash these prisons of deception and set the captives free is God's truth. Read 2 Timothy 2, verses 24 to 26. Now, of course even though the only thing strong enough to smash Satan's lies, to to break the chains of darkness and set the captives free is God's truth. That's assuming, of course, that Christians are attending churches that are faithfully teaching them God's truth, all right, and equipping them to be good soldiers of Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, many churches do not see themselves as spiritual boot camps anymore. (laughs) More like Christian country clubs, really. And many Christians, don't see themselves as soldiers of Christ, which is a big reason why we're losing the culture war. We're losing the culture war because, and I say because, so many Christians no longer think of themselves as soldiers fighting a war, and because of it they are A-W-O-L. They're not fighting at all. They're not fighting the good fight of faith because Christianity to them isn't about serving the Lord, it's about listening. Let's be honest, the Lord serving them. In other words, they're not soldiers, they're consumers. And church is the place they go to consume products and services. It's not a place that most people who go to church today go to be trained in how to be a good soldier of Jesus Christ. They don't have that mindset. They don't have the mind of Christ who said, I've come into the world to battle darkness, to set captives free, to bring God's truth in a world of lies because it's only only powerful enough to set the captives free and save people from Satan's lies. Most people today, I'm convinced, I could be wrong, I hope I am, go to church not to be trained to fight spiritual warfare, but they come to church to be blessed, to socialize, make business contacts, be entertained through skits and high-powered Christian performers, maybe grab a Starbucks and lunch at the, at the food court. You say, is that wrong? No, it, it, I, honestly, I, it, it's not wrong. I'm not saying it's evil. It's definitely a distraction, though. It's definitely a distraction from what the church is supposed to be and do. Turn to 1 Timothy 3. We're talking about what the church is to be. What what has God made it to be? Forget about what Phil Baumeier says. How about Paul the Apostle? Okay? I mean, I'm on solid ground because I'm just going from what the Scriptures are teaching. But let's hear from the mouth of Paul the Apostle himself. 1 Timothy 3, starting with verse 14. Remember now, Paul is writing to Timothy, who is a young pastor living in Ephesus. Timothy is. In 1 Timothy 3, 14, Paul says, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. Listen, the pillar and ground of the truth. Paul says the church of Jesus Christ is designed by God to be the pillar of, and ground of the truth. Now, when Paul says the church is a pillar, obviously, he's using an architectural image. That would have meant, I think, a lot to Timothy since he lived in Ephesus where the Temple of Diana stood, one of the uh, seven wonders of the ancient world. Temple of Diana was a massive structure. It had 127 pillars uh, that made it up. But a pillar, of course, was used to support or hold up a structure. However, in those days, a pillar was often stood up, you know, freestanding, um, was often set up freestanding in a, a public square or a crowded marketplace, and then notices or announcements were, uh, were I'm going to say taped to it, to it, not taped to it, they attached it somehow. All right? <laughs> Scott's taped them right up there, and, um, you know, and so this freestanding pillar became like a like a first century bulletin board in our day okay and um, these announcements notices were uh, posted on it and so in that context guys it became a proclaimer a proclaimer and so the first thing that we christians are to do as pillars is to hold up and proclaim god's truth to the people of this world it's called the great commission go into all the world and preach the gospel preach god's truth But then Paul says that we as the church of the living God are not just to be pillars, but also the ground of the truth. The word ground in the Greek is a word that suggests a bulwark, a bulwark. The definitionary defines bulwark as, and I'm quoting now, a solid wall-like structure raised for defense. As Christians, we are not only to proclaim the word of God, but we are also to defend it against the attacks of the enemy, earnestly defending the faith as Jude admonished us. In fact, when Jude spoke those words in his epistle, verse 3, he said, earnestly defending the faith. The faith is a reference to New Testament doctrine that God has committed into our care. In other words, uh, in Ephesians 2, Paul talked about this New Testament doctrine being the foundation that the church has been built on. He said, I thought it was Jesus the church is built on. It is, but in that context, he's talking about the word, New Testament doctrine, all right? Of course, Jesus, you know, he's the chief cornerstone of it all, but the idea is that the church is, the New Testament church uh, was to be built, as God ordained, on a foundation of New Testament doctrine. We have that in our laps, don't we? And, of course, in the first century, it was, it was being given. So, you know, as time went on, it was more and more. Uh, in then 95 A.D. was the book of Revelation. God gave that vision to John. And so the New Testament was canon of Scripture was completed. But that is to be what the church is built on. That's the faith, uh, you know, New Testament truth, in particular the gospel, uh, that Jude says we are to earnestly contend for defend you know proclaim defend with every ounce of strength we have as a soldier of christ this is our mission paul said look i like to come. sorry i haven't been able to come sooner timothy i've been kind of tied up with things uh you know but i I'm, I'm planning to come soon but if i don't come look i want you i want to write these things to you so that you may know how you ought to as a pastor conduct yourself in the house of god the church of the living god And remember, it is the pillar and the ground of the truth, Timothy. He's reminding this young pastor, look, this first and foremost is what the church is to be. A place where truth is proclaimed and truth is defended because the lies of the devil are out there. And not only are they out there, he's brought them in here. And if we don't know the truth as God's people, well, let me just say this, many Christians are being deceived. Many false doctrines have come into the church, again, check out the teachings, uh, the battle for truth, uh, one to three, because we talked about the lie, very specific, li- the lie, okay? Romans, what, 125, 2 Thessalonians two eleven, I think, are the two scriptures, goes back to the Garden of Eden. If we don't know what we're up against, we are not going to be good soldiers of Jesus Christ, we are not going to do what God wants us to do, which is proclaim the truth, defend the truth, Live the truth, because in sharing the truth, the Great Commission, we are being used by God to set the captives free. Author Warren Worsby said, and I quote, As a bulwark, the church protects the truth and makes sure it does not fall. When local churches turn away from the truth or compromise it in their ministry, then the enemy makes progress. Sometimes church leaders must take a militant stand against sin and apostasy, against homosexuality against abortion against a lot of junk coming into the church worse said this does not make them popular but it does please the lord end quote again jesus promised that against his church the gates of hell would not be victorious because god's truth is stronger than satan's lies and if we are marinated in the truth as spurgeon said if our blood is biblicine. What does that mean? I'll let you ask version. Uh, you know, I mean, the word of God just got to permeate every area of your body. It's got to it's be your lifeblood. If it is, you'll be protected. You'll know the truth. It'll make you free from spiritual error. If you don't feed on the word of God, any church that is not built on a foundation of God's word, listen, will not stand. I'm not saying that the, they won't open the doors on Sunday morning. I'm just saying that the Lord won't be there. And you won't be blessing whatever's going on in there. Number five. You just saw number four, churches to be a place where the word of God is taught faithfully. Number five, the church is to be a place where Jesus is honored and exalted. Again, I draw your attention to Matthew 21. This time, verse 15 says, But when the chief now he's already cleansed the temple. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did. And the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? (laughs) And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have perfected praise? That last part, of course, was Jesus quoted from Psalm 8, verse 2. But wow, what an indictment against the hypocrisy and corruption of these so called spiritual leaders in Jesus' day. Turning God's house into a den of thieves didn't bother them. Praise that Jesus did. Now, you go tell me if this was a place where the Lord was really there. Of course, after Jesus cleansed it, he was. That's just amazing to me. They, they didn't care if they turned God's house into a money making corrupt business. But God forbid Jesus should be praised. The word children there, don't let this f- throw you. Um, you know, when the chief scribes of the wonderful, wonderful things he did and the children crying out in the temple saying Hosanna and so on. The word children there is a Greek word that doesn't mean toddler. It was a, a word used of a, a teenager primarily. A teenager. These are teenage boys. And many believe it refers to young teenage boys or men who had recently passed their bar mitzvahs And they come to Jerusalem each to celebrate their first Passover as a man. These Jewish leaders knew that the son of David was a messianic term. They're crying out Hosanna uh, to the son of David. Son of David was a messianic. They're calling him Messiah. Hosanna is a word that means save now. They're acknowledging Jesus is the Messiah and they're asking him, Lord, save us from Roman oppression and bring the kingdom in now. This infuriated, it says, these spiritual leaders. They were indignant. Actually, the word is much stronger in the Greek. They were furious. Furious. I mean, these supposed spiritual leaders in Israel were furious because these young men were praising Jesus as Messiah and Savior. They were beside themselves, these spiritual leaders, with rage that these teenagers were honoring and exalting Jesus as Messiah and savior of the nation you say why did that bother them so much listen the scribes and chief priests were furious because they were the spiritual leaders of the nation they were educated they were degreed they had their doctorate the doctors of the law we read in the new testament and if they didn't believe jesus was who he claimed to be and they refused to honor him as the messiah well then how dare these young nobodies proclaim him to be so and that's why, folks, when God works a revival, I can't think of one revival that started with the religious establishment. Many of them started with the young people. Well, Welsh Revival, the Jesus Movement in the 60s, Welsh Revival around 1906, Jesus Movement in the 60s, 70s, 80s, we're a part of that actually, okay? Started with the young people. Young believers who are hungry for God. God bless. I just love it when young people come to church. These guys, young guys, were in the temple of God, to house of God, because they wanted to be near God. They were hungry. I'm so blessed when young people come to church and nobody's forced them to be here. They're just, they want to be close to God. They want to hear the word of God. That blesses me. And those are the kind of hearts that God often uses to bring revival because they're a blank slate. They're not corrupted with all the years of indoctrination at seminary and Bible colleges. I had one Calvary pastor who went to seminary and said it took me a long time to get unindoctrinated from all the junk I was taught in seminary. I almost lost my faith completely. Then God saved him and he became a Calvary pastor. So it shouldn't surprise us that these old crusty doctors of Judaism couldn't see what the young men and women saw in Jesus' day. But again, it shouldn't surprise us in our day because there are many spiritual leaders across this country that have their doctorates in theology but don't even believe Jesus was virgin born or the Son of God. I mean, they give him lip service, but they will not honor him, exalt him, or accept him for who he really is. They are false shepherds. Read Matthew seven, and as false shepherds, they are leading many, like spiritual pipe pipers, down the broadway to hell. Turn to Matthew twenty-two. I'd like to address this issue right now because Jesus did. At one point, he turns to the religious leaders, part of them were the Pharisees. And in Matthew 22, verse 42, and again, he's talking to the religious leadership. He says, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? What he's asking them is, look, you've rejected me as the Messiah because I claim to be the Son of God. All right, well, who do you say is going to be? Who do you think he's? Whether you know it or not, guys, this is the supreme question. And it doesn't, once you love the Lord, he always had a way of putting his finger on what was really important. Cut through all the baloney, all the hype. Nicodemus, we know that you're a naked We know that you're a man son from God. Nobody can do what you do. God is with him. Look, if you want to see the kingdom of heaven, you better be born again. So you cut right to the heart, right? Forget this flattery, okay? Right to the, the issue. Okay, the Lord knows how to get right to the issue. And he knew the real issue when it comes to eternal life comes down to this one question primarily. Who is Jesus Christ? Whose son is he? Is he just the son of a man, therefore a man himself and only a man? Or is he the son of God, God in human form? Well, again, verse 42, what do you think, what do you, what do you Pharisees think about the Christ, the Messiah? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. Now, of course, the response of the Pharisees to Jesus' question was the standard belief held by most, if not all, of the Jewish people in Jesus' day as to whom the Messiah would be when he finally came on the scene. Most Jews believed that Messiah was going to be a descendant of David. Now, that was true because God had promised David, 2 Samuel 7, the Messiah would come from David's own loins. He would be a descendant of David. That's solid ground. The problem was they took it to the next step and believed because the Messiah was going to be a descendant of David. He was going to be a mere man like David and not the Son of God. Well, you can read the whole section of Matthew 22 because the Lord addresses that whole thing, Okay? let me just stop and say this, most of of the Jewish leadership in Jesus' day didn't even believe he was the Messiah, let alone the Son of God. Look, let me just say this, we as a nation, as we become less and less religious and more and more secular, this is becoming more and more the common view in our country concerning Christ. Many people today believe Jesus was a good man a great man, maybe even the greatest teacher who has ever lived, but just a man, not the Son of God. I mean, how anybody can say that Jesus was just a great religious teacher and yet reject everything he taught about himself and salvation to me is absolutely ridiculous. And yet if you were to go out on the streets or in a public area, and you began to ask people today what they believed about Jesus Christ. For the most part, a lot of people tell you, get out of here. I don't believe in anything. Okay, that's, we, we understand that. But for the most part, it would look something like this. You would go up to a person and say, uh, who do you think Jesus Christ was? And uh, they'll probably tell you something along these lines. Well, I believe he was a great religious teacher. Sent here by God to teach us truth. okay. Do you believe he was God in human form? Uh, No, not really. I believe that we're all on our way to God consciousness. (laughs) Well, do you believe that he is the Savior of the world who came into the world to save us from sin? I'm convinced most people would say, no, I don't believe that we're sinners. I I don't believe that there is any ultimate right or wrong. It's whatever is right for you. Well, do you believe he's the only way to heaven? Absolutely not. There are many roads that lead to heaven. We're all taking different roads. I mean, what baffles me is people who believe that, okay, um, they say Jesus was the, one of the greatest teachers ever lived. It, it, they pretty much reject everything he taught about himself and salvation. It just, it's just mind-numbing to me. Well, then how, why is he a great teacher? Look, you know, he said, I'm the son of God. You do believe that? No, I don't believe that. He said he was the only way to the Father. Do you believe that? No, we're taking many roads to get to heaven. Well, then why was he such a great teacher? You reject everything he taught about himself and salvation. And yet so many people today want to acknowledge that Jesus was a good man, a moral man, a great teacher, a philosopher, but stop short of believing he was and is the Son of God. I love what C.S. Lewis said along these lines or to this point. And, um, he said, and I'm quoting him, I'm trying to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a, as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claims to be God. That That is one thing we must not say, said Lewis. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher he would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse, end quote. Why is this such an important issue? Why is it so important that we come to terms with who Jesus Christ really is or in that their case was back then? Whose son is he? Why is it so important that I believe he's the son of God? And if I don't believe he's the son of God, can I go to heaven still? Well, I won't have you turn but John 8:24 answers that question. Jesus said, unless you believe that I am, that's the name of God, unless you believe that I am almighty Jehovah God, I'm paraphrasing, you will die in your sins. That's another way of saving, saying you will die and go to hell for eternity. This is a fundamental doctrine of salvation that you believe that Jesus Christ was not just a God. He was the God, second person of the Trinity, God who became flesh and dwelt among us. John, right? It says that in John 1.14. Because... And here's what Satan does. He knows most folks in the world are not going to be atheists. He knows that, or agnostic. Most people are going to embrace some religion. He he understands it. That's why he's done some of his best work through religion, to deceive people. That's why the JWs, the Mormons, to name a couple of groups, Christian cults, they'll tell you that, well, Mormonism believes that Jesus and, and Lucifer were brothers. Okay, and Lucifer was the bad apple. He went off and, you know, uh, Jesus was the good son and so on and so forth. And, but they're equal and so on. No, no. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus Christ is not God Almighty. He's a God. Mighty God, but not Almighty Jehovah God. And they didn't die for, rise from the dead bodily. Another essential doctrine for salvation. So Satan does some of his best work through religion. But I I really agree with what C.S. Lewis pointed out. Either Jesus Christ is a liar, a lunatic, or he wasn't his Lord, the Son of the living God, through whom there is no other, as Peter said, neither is there any other name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved. He's the only way. But again, guys, as we bring this to a close, many liberal churches, in fact, I think all of them, liberal churches today deny all of that. They don't honor the true Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible. So they have a Jesus who was a wonderful teacher, a great moral leader, but not the Son of God. In their minds, He didn't die to save us from our sin, from eternal punishment, because they don't believe in hell. Nor do they believe He is coming again someday to judge the living and the dead, to establish a kingdom that will never end, because they don't believe in a literal kingdom. They're ah millennial. There is no literal kingdom. It's all allegory. I beg to differ. And so they have a false Jesus while failing to honor and exalt the true Jesus. But listen to me. Now listen, because we evangelicals can get kind of smug. As we look at these people that deny all this essential stuff about Jesus and how ridiculous, how foolish they are, we can get a little smug, can't we? But we can believe all the right things about Jesus, as evangelicals we do. We can believe all the right things about Jesus and still not honor him or obey him as Lord over our lives. It's not enough to just have the truth, believe the truth. As James says, don't, be a, don't deceive yourself into thinking that just because you come to church and hear the truth, that's all you need. you got to be doers of the word, not just hearers. And Jesus said at one point to a group of would-be disciples, Luke 6, 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord? And yet don't do the things that I tell you. I'll tell you what. The fool says in his heart there is no God. But the greater fool says there is a God. And I know what he has said, but I'm just not going to live it. But I go to church. Okay? I go to church. Isn't that all God wants from me? I'll let you read scripture and determine if that's all he wants from you. All right, guys. Finally, when the church becomes a house of prayer a place of worship, a healing place, a place where God's word is taught faithfully, and a place where Jesus is honored and exalted, then the church should become, our sixth and last point, a place of dynamic spiritual power and effectiveness. And again, I turn back to Matthew 21, verse 15, which says, But when the chief priests and scribes saw, listen, the wonderful things that he did, in the Greek, that's a word for miracles, Miracles. After Jesus cleansed the temple, it became a place where God began to do miracles. Why isn't God doing miracles today, for the most part, in churches across America? Because the church isn't what God wants it to be. It's corrupt. Listen to me when the church is holy, living by God's word and walking in the spirit, when she is uncorrupted by greed, materialism, and carnality, when she doesn't just call Jesus Lord, but bows in humble obedience to his lordship, when the church becomes all that God has commanded her to be, then and only then will she accomplish all that he has called her to do. And guys, who is the church? Look in the mirror. This doesn't just apply to the church in general. It applies to Christians in particular. When we as Christians live holy lives, living by God's word and walking in the spirit, when we as Christians live lives that are not corrupted by greed, materialism, and carnality, when we just don't call Jesus Lord but bow to his lordship over our lives in obedience to what he has said, then God will begin to work in our lives, our marriages, our families, our walk, Then we will know the power of the Spirit upon our lives. We will be more than conquerors, not those who just limp by, uh, you know, because uh, we can't can't figure out, well, why if God promised, I'm going to be more than a conqueror, why can't I get rid of this addiction? Or why can't I rise up and have victory in my life? Let me tell you something. It's not God's fault. And it's not that his word isn't true. We have to examine ourselves. Are we all that God wants us to be? Because when we are, through his power, no doubt about it, but the willingness has to be there. When we are all that God wants us to be, guys, listen, he will do it and through us all he has promised he will do. It's always our fault. The word of God is is true. If God has made you a promise, you can take it to the bank. But a lot of his promises are conditional. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, seek my face, pray, and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear their prayer from heaven, forgive their sins, and heal their land. Where's God? Where was God in Florida, I hear the critics say. Oh, pray. Yeah, let's pray some more. You throw God out of school 30 years ago or 40 or 50 years ago, and then when something like this happens, you say, where is God? Give me a break. Give me a break. This country is coming apart, not because God is not faithful to doing what He's promised us, because we, as the body of Christ, are not being faithful to doing what He's told us to do. I'm telling you, if we will get our acts together and by God's grace begin to be the people God wants us to do individually and collectively, I guarantee you, the church will rise up with such power and such victory. We will see souls set free from the devil's lies so quick. We will not be able to understand what is happening. It's going to be such an incredible thing to see. But we have to want it. We have to say, God, here I am. Lord, use me. I'm going to draw a circle in my bedroom. I'm going to kneel on it and say, Lord, bring revival to this circle before I can ever be used to take a revival out into the church or in the world. So may God give us grace. May he really use us in these last days for his glory. I pray, Jesus keeps cleansing his church, his house, his temple, so that it can once again be all that God designed it to be and do all the work he's called us to do. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We know your word is living and powerful. It's true. And if it's not coming to pass in our lives, we don't question the word's veracity. We look at our own lives and see where we are failing. So, Lord, forgive us for the carnality. Forgive us for the apathy. Forgive us, Lord, for turning our Christianity into what you're going to do to bless me instead of how I'm going to live to serve you. Forgive us, Lord. We pray right now in this church, Lord, you will pour out a spirit of conviction, a spirit of confession, a spirit that will break us, that we will get on our faces and confess our sins, that, Lord, you might forgive us, heal us, and begin to use this church in ways we never thought possible. All for your glory, and in Jesus' precious name we ask it. Amen.